When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Smart Talk series, a Henry George School of Social Science podcast. The Smart Talk series is a weekly podcast with an array of discussions held with academics, policymakers, practitioners, and other professionals to explore new ideas and theories within the economics field. Our discussion today came from our archives and was recorded in December of 2022. Our talk is hosted by Ed Dodson, who had the pleasure of joining our guest, Miss Chloe Brown. Ms. Brown is a community organizer and mayoral candidate for the City of Toronto. She received her bachelor's from Ryerson University in Public Administration and Governance and her master's from Humber College in Human Resource Management and Administrative Services. Chloe has spent her life advocating for change within her community. Her campaign focuses on issues of inequality, land use, and quality of life. Many of her solutions revolve around an equitable use of land or a progressive taxation that would distribute benefits to the working class. When listening to today's episode, I urge you to think about land ownership and all the different benefits of it. If you're a renter or someone who just likes to move around a lot in this age of digital nomads, what are the economic or political benefits you miss out on? Ms. Brown looks to solve this problem by removing the mutual exclusivity of land ownership and rights. I encourage you to think about how expanding these liberties to those without ownership of land could diffuse power and how that would create different economic outcomes. This week, we discussed how Toronto can improve housing, why relying on real estate developers can lead to unaffordable housing, and how taxation can be used to incentivize equitable development. We hope you enjoy this talk, and please make sure to check back on our page every week for a brand new episode. Would you tell our smart, smart Talk viewers more about yourself and how your commitment to constructive policy changes drew you into the political arena? All right. So in Toronto, I work at a university and within the university, it's a grant agency. And what we've been doing for the past four years, I've been only there for two, like a year now, actually, less than a year. It's called the Future Skills Center. And we fund different sectors, innovating operations and processes that would attract new talent and also improve their their productivity. So for example, there's an automated micro factory. And during COVID, it was able to produce 160,000 masks in under two weeks with only two people there because the automated processes. So whether it was 3D laser cutting or they were using collaborative robotics, it was able to bring down the overhead, the labor, and still able to produce what it needed. So that's what really brought me to politics, because in the back end, I do program evaluation and research. And one of the things that really troubles me about working at a grant agency is that, yes, we provide that first seed funding, but sustainability often like depends on your government adopting it and scaling it. Because 
yeah, you can work at university, but the students leave and then you have a new batch to try these ideas with. And when we talk about sustainability, we often fail to look at how inclusivity matters because I, as someone at 31, should be able to grasp it. My mom should be able to grasp it. My grandparents. And that's how something becomes sustainable. It's not just the fact that it's green. So I got into politics to really challenge the management style that is currently dominating. And for me, that's like neoliberal management. And it's really good for raising money, but it's not really good at looking at how to make things scalable to the larger public. So yeah, well, it's a ask, long Let me ask story. you a very, very pointy question. Do you think this is somewhat of a generational issue in terms of of generations having a very different understanding of systems and how they apply to the people living in communities and to a municipality? Yes and no, because what I found doing voter engagement is that even though our generations may be separate, we want the same things. How we communicate it differs because of how we've been trained through different education styles and also, there's a gap between post-secondary education attainment, where my parents were, they just left high school and they gained their professionalism through trial and error. I went through school, so it's like I have this level of understanding of professional methodologies and principles that I try to apply on a wider range versus um, the pay your dues type of baby boomer mentality and that also goes with housing where it's like yeah like we don't mind you being neighbors but you earn your place to come into this neighborhood and that's what nimbyism has become where i don't doubt that voters want new neighbors but it's the the way that housing has been politicized by left and right-wing parties that have created these different subgroups <laughs> and that's created a further generational divide because it's I live in an apartment building and I have senior neighbors and we're getting along fine. It's not until you talk about home ownership that it becomes an issue. Well, in Toronto is the dominant uh, form of occupancy owner occupied or is Toronto a largely renter occupied city as for example, New York City would be? It has become largely renter occupied. And when I was doing the voter engagement, it's surprising how many houses I went to and there's students that cannot vote because they are international students. So that means like they're foreign and right. they don't have the right to vote or they're from rural towns and their voting station is somewhere else. So it's like you have nine people living in a house that cannot vote, even though the person on the registry is the voter and they can vote from outside the city. So landowners are, can they can technically get two votes if you look at it because they can vote in the place they reside and the place they own land. So there's a huge swath of voters that could not really participate in this election. And it really shows in terms of how renters are treated by the municipal system, in my opinion. And one of the things I was really pushing for was a publicly owned tenant system because as a tenant, you're looking through Kijiji, you're looking through Craigslist. Um, in Toronto, we use something called PadMapper and all these private groups use your data to improve their systems, but there's no agreement like that that exists in the municipality. So it's like, how do I as a tenant influence housing policy if I'm not registered as a voter because I'm a tenant? If I'm not 
like seen as a voter because there's no registry for me to even register on. So it becomes a larger systemic issue where it's like tenants are devalued even in the creation of programs and services because most things cater to homeowners because they have a stabilized location. That's a That sounds like a very complex uh, political structure where if I heard you correctly, someone can actually vote in two locations based on the fact that they own property in two locations that are not in the same municipality? Yes, so as long as you're a citizen. As long as you're a citizen. Yes, huh. and citizenship plays a very strong role in who gets to vote. Like 50% of Torontonians that are residents are born from outside of Canada and they don't have the right to vote. They're not yet naturalized, as we would say. Yeah. And that's the thing. Naturalization can take four to five years. And if you're in that five-year cusp, you've missed the election cycle. So it really is a matter of timing. And when you apply home ownership, because that's where like your voter location guide gets sent to as well. If you're not, if you're someone that's constantly being forced to move, you lose your voter's card. And this is something that happens to a lot of tenants because if the if the election's not promoted, how do you know there's an election going on? How do you receive your voter's card to tell you what poll to go to? And it exacerbates the lack of representation of tenant issues and the lack of a property scale. And a property scale in Toronto is like a rooming house that you live in that's off the campus. And then you get an apartment and then you get a house. But because like apartments and rooming houses are now both the same price and rooming houses are not legalized here or licensed. It's become a very competitive market of like people in their 20s competing against people in their 50s. And we're all competing for like a rental of any sort. It doesn't even matter the quality at this point. And because right now in Canada, we are facing the Bank of Canada as they fix our mortgage rates. We're seeing that a lot of the foreign ownership fears that we had, it's domestic property owners that are outplacing would-be first-time owners. Because Is that the an average, issue of, of absentee yeah. ownership? In other words, are the, the property owners largely non-Toronto residents? Yeah. So they own a good deal of investment property, but but they're not close to the property and so may not maintain it or look after the property as one would if, let's say, you owned a two or three family property and used two of your units as rentals. Yes. And that's exacerbated by our universities and colleges heavily relying on foreign students. So the average rental cycle is a semester, really. Mm -hmm. And once those students like cycle out for the summer, then a lot of property becomes available. So it's like me as a young professional at 30 starts competing against students and wishing for them to leave. And this is the things that are breeding resentments between generations, I feel, more deeply than like the lack of communication between us. It's like we're all competing for the same bad resource. And it's really, it gets worse when politicians use that where it's like oh I only represent seniors and I represent businesses and then it's like well I represent the working class and while we all have the same issue of trying to get property it's like the residents associations become weaponized against tenants and in Ontario which is our larger province there's a land tribunal board 
where I, as a resident, could stop an affordable housing development if it doesn't apply to neighborhood character, and the cost is $400. Hmm. Yeah, so it's like, I well, can stop the two. You know, yeah. The NIMBYism and and all of that, and you know, there, there's, there's so much resistance in every city to land use changes. And of course, one of the one of the policies that you've put forward that certainly attracted us to you to talk to you was your support of land value taxation. And and first, I would I would wonder uh, ask you where did you learn about land value taxation? Was this in your formal education or through contact with uh, in, in other individuals in the you know, political arena or the activist arena in your your area? And then tell me how powerful a tool you think it could be to solve some of the problems you've just identified. So I actually stumbled across it in just my research for my platform. And I didn't really understand how large of a scale it was being applied to until the physiocrats reached out to me. And we had a Reddit conversation where they asked me anything. And it was like, I adopted the policy because I saw it working in Singapore, the Netherlands and Australia. And I thought as leading economies, like why not apply it to something that I want to be leading. But the more that I spoke to the physiocrats and the Georgists, it's like, okay, I understand now that North America is trying to adopt this. And as I got into the mass value appraisal calculators that I saw out there, I was like, this is a really good idea because we already have different policies where we're using metric-based systems based on location. So in Toronto, we have the Toronto Strong Neighborhood Strategy. And the way that they were calculating funding for improvement was based on this metric system of how close you are to transit, healthy food stores, parks, et cetera. And my thinking was like, why not apply this to how renters understand why they're paying a certain rent or why I'm paying this property tax for where I'm living? Because one of the biggest issues in Toronto is that the working class is subsidizing a large property owning group. And that's the universities, the nonprofits, the charities, the churches, like they're Does really, they're huge here. Do those institutions pay a fee in lieu of property taxes, as is the case elsewhere? No. I mean, for example, in Philadelphia, the University of Pennsylvania takes has great advantage of all the public services provided and other universities in other cities do as well. And they are tax exempt. However, uh, they normally are uh, willing to pay some fee in lieu of property taxes to compensate the community for the benefits that the university receives, the, the police and fire protection and all those other kinds of things. And that's um, not the case for you in, in Toronto. Not in the way that it works in the States. Um, so one of the strange things about our larger region is that there are in some cities, there's more churches than there are housing. Mm -hmm. And when those institutions outstrip the residents, you have this imbalance in taxation. And this is where I was trying to pilot in in Toronto because we're the economic engine for the for the larger nation. And it's like, if we can do this here, why not look at it for other municipalities? And funnily enough, we looked at it 
for transit-oriented developments when we wanted to start building housing above our transit stations. The reason why it didn't get passed is because there was like this really large shift in our, our provincial government. So it was one of those things where it's like, yeah, it's a great idea, but the leader is gone. So we have to try something new now. And I think there's so much potential there because when I look at how the Netherlands uses it to build their cycling infrastructure, how Singapore uses it to fund its biophilic um, mission, there's a really great opportunity to just look at land and then look at how you can build above it. And that's going to fix our housing crisis because our shelters are full. We have young professionals participating in a lottery for working, working force, workforce housing. And yeah, like we're at, we are pretty much at the end of relying on developers. We need better solutions and like tax is the answer for me. So yeah, it's really just about removing the politics from land value tax because a lot of people still don't even know who Georgists are. So it's like building that community around like tax fairness, bringing in the people that want social programs, letting them understand like land itself can be used better for taxation versus just land for development would be such a big step to making it feasible. Certainly a key to success is an assessment system that keeps property values up to date. I mean, yeah. this is one of the problems in many cities in the United States where neighborhoods that are experiencing declining property values actually end up having the property tax being very regressive because mm -hmm. the reassessments do not fall at the same rate as the um, values are falling. And then in the other side of the market, property values are climbing, but the assessments aren't keeping pace. And so there is a, a, a distributional negative effect of, of, of really penalizing low and moderate income homeowners. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that's, I, I'm sure you're focused on that as well. And hopefully you have some allies in modernization of the assessment system, making sure that values are kept up to, up to date. Now, there is also, there's a longer term issue that you may not be totally aware of, but, but you need to consider in terms of economics. And that is uh, land value taxation conceptually is really the public collection of the rental value of land. And the more you collect of that value, the less there is of a an imputed income stream to the property owner that can be capitalized into a land price. And so there is a long-term effect, if it's done right, that land prices will stabilize and then begin to come down. And as one of our colleagues in the UK, Fred Harrison, has observed, it means that middle-class property owners tend to be the primary beneficiaries of the existing system and therefore will be very reluctant to accept land value taxation uh, it, because it, it would basically over time, if done right, would begin to eat away at their net worth, which is generated from land values rather than their housing value. Yeah. So that's just a consideration. I don't know if, if you've thought that through that far, but, but it's yeah. something I would point to you. Well, this is where we have to give homeowners like 
a little shaking because it's like you pay for this in incarcerations when you have people that are homeless, you pay for it in hospitalizations, you pay for it in the fact that your kids don't feel safe on their way to school. And this is where like the crisis of conscience needs to come from politics where it's like, how much money do you need (laughs) before you feel safe? You know what I mean? Like you can invest in security systems, buy a fence, buy security dogs, or you could just, you know, delay gratification of profit. And that is something that on a larger scale is like post-capitalism, de-acceleration. Like I'm hearing like the reducing growth. And it's a very scary thing to think about when it's we're dealing with inflation. But when you talk about how land value could stabilize, that's where I find I was able to win over some like middle income homeowners because their mortgage rate goes up with this lack of housing that I have and people that are homeless have because it's crunching the market and there's only so high that things can go. So yeah, it's one of those things where I'm really trying to find more people to create a plain language storytelling guide to it because it's not like the appetite for change isn't out there. It's just me talking to you like this is academic speak how do you explain this to like a mother of two in an apartment that is saving up for a mortgage how do you explain it to like a young person you know what I mean because even 18 year olds are talking about like how do I afford a house in the future and one way is like telling them instead of your parents going into their pension a land value tax that we all collectively put into reduces that burden and I think that's where a lot of us as academics struggle. It's just like, we, we're reporters. Storytelling is not our greatest strength, but the more we tell stories about it, the more tangible this change becomes. Yeah, Here in the United States, the one story I would point to would be the success that the state capital in Pennsylvania has had, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, which has moved over the decades to now, I think the the rate of taxation on assessed building values is uh, one-sixth of that on land. In other words, the rate on land is six times higher than that on buildings. Mm-hmm. And when the, the city of Harrisburg started that process, the city was in very distressed condition. And over the years, it has used the revenue it's raised to address a lot of its social inequities, its housing you know, uh, challenges, and and many other problems that, that the city has had. So I think there's one city to look at. I, I did a little bit of research on your cities, on Toronto's uh, mass transit system, its tr- subway system. And I'm sure this is no surprise to you. It's gotten a very bad rating uh, as a for such a large city as compared to other large cities. And so uh, it looks as though you're, the city is planning to expand it considerably. Are the is the planning commission aware that there is a potential for value capture with every new uh, subway stop that's that's created? Is that something that they're now aware of and that this is a potential source of an enormous amount of public revenue? So the report I read from um, Metrolinks, that is the agency that had to change its direction because leadership changed. 
So it's the same, it's the same transit agency. It's all a matter of political will to do it. And right now we're actually facing a potential general strike because our premier is using this notwithstanding clause to override constitutional right to strike. And our transit agency, the buses at least, they're on strike. Mm. So this is where this is where political will gets in the way of good policy. And that's one of the reasons why I ran for mayor, because some people are like, why didn't you just go for counselor? And it's like, because council's not even big enough for what needs to happen. And yeah, they know about the potential of it. It's just the commitment to low taxes is really what keeps our our whole country in a stranglehold. We're very risk averse. So it's like, oh, the idea of raising taxes is so scandalous, but we can't escape the fact that our taxes fund our public services. And a lot of our public services are the rails, the hospitals. Like, it's one of the frustrating things about Canadians, if I have to be honest. We want really top quality things, but the price tag is always sticker shock for us. So well, we're, we share that with you. I mean, <laughs> in economics, the term free rider is is widely, you know, shared. Everybody yeah. wants the cost, the benefit to come and the cost to be passed on to some some other layer of government or some other group of people. I mean, that's that's just human nature. But it seems like, uh, you know, with if your subway system is is undergoing a potential for expansion and and you're including uh, transit oriented development particularly of mixed use housing around those those new transit stops that's that's a, a a ripe market to really introduce land value taxation even if it can't be introduced citywide it could possibly be introduced in those particular zones maybe you know, if they can be declared, if if the transit-oriented development could be categorized as a enterprise zone, mm-hmm. then they might have some possibility to win some political votes there. Uh, yeah, and that's this is the problem with um, taxation when it comes against zoning, because we have a lot of rural land that we use for farmland, some want to change it over for development right now. And that's where we're having a lot of resistance. Well, none of us wants more sprawl than we already have. Yeah. And like, it's one of those frustrating things where it's like Toronto subway is expanding, but the province is expanding regional rail through municipalities and municipalities along the route are rightfully upset because the province is trying to pave through farmland. So there's there's like a two-prong barrier to getting land value tax right now. Like our premier is just very resistant to enacting any changes that would upset his voter base, mm-hmm. but his donors are real estate developers. So he has found himself between a rock and a hard place because we desperately need a different mechanism for funding transit. In Toronto, we have the lowest subsidy because the federal government doesn't subsidize it, neither does the province. But rail expansion is funded by the province and the federal government. It's operations and maintenance that really kills the quality of public transit here. 
So there's revenue sharing for building the systems, but no revenue sharing for operating the systems. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it's you'll, you'll notice okay. you'll notice that the issues that, that you face we're talking about, they're so common. You know, all of us have been working on these these kinds of challenges, you know, for forever. I mean, I I spent 20 years of my working life at Fannie Mae in the United States uh, working on affordable housing initiatives. Mm -hmm. And uh, around I retired in 2005 and about 19, uh, about 2001, I convinced our senior people that land value taxation was a key ingredient for expanding the supply of affordable housing uh, in the country. And they sent me around uh, giving talks on it to stakeholder groups. And so I've had this great experience of speaking to people who were in the activist community, development community, and, and public office, and finding how little they really understood about how the markets work. They had they had biased positions and found it very difficult to move off of those biased positions by by any insight that you provided. Uh, occasionally, there there were people who actually listened and understood and understood that I, I would make the case housing is a depreciating asset. Yeah, I'm a, I, when I was a banker, when I was lending money to people to buy housing. We gave them a 30-year amortizing loan because 30 years is about the life expectancy of a house. If you don't constantly put money into it and every 10 years you have to replace the systems and really renovate it. Mm -hmm. uh, so as a, as a lending institution, we expected the house to depreciate pretty considerably, but we loaned money to uh, enable people to buy the land and that unfortunately helps to fuel land price increases because when credit's widely available for land purchase, then the seller can use that as a way to say to the buyer, "Well, um, you can get you can get mortgage financing." And the problem is today, I don't know what your median uh, housing price is in Toronto, but in the United States, it's well up to close to three hundred thousand dollars. And you're asking a young adult family to borrow close to $300,000 and carry that debt for 30 years. What happens if there's a blip in the economy and you have unemployment? All of a sudden, as is occurring in the United States, you have not just hundreds or thousands, you have hundreds of thousands of people defaulting on their mortgage loans and ending up where? Uh, yeah. No, we're, we're actually about to see that play out here because, as I had said earlier, domestic home, like multiple home ownership is a huge problem here, like 46%. And yeah, the Bank of Canada keeps rising the rate. And we're seeing that just, just on like the message boards, you're seeing how young parents like young professionals parents all got together in an agreement to buy multiple homes and now the rates are getting raised and now whole life savings are they're either up for sale or they're going to be wiped out and it's a lot of 
young newcomer professionals who've been told on social media, housing's this stable asset, invest, invest, invest. And in Canada, no one talks about housing depreciating because we have such large landmass. And it's really, as, as a person who like grew up in her 20s, like seeing the housing crisis in America, like, it's shocking that that behavior crept up here. And we're really in a pinch because we have a bunch of land that could be developed, but then you have homeowners that don't want homeless people living in their communities, even though they'd be in a modular housing setting. There's young people who cannot afford housing because the cost of a house is like a million dollars. Like I went to look for even a condo and they said, okay, like your little down payment of $30,000 needs to be so much higher. And it was maybe a 500 square foot condo. It's everything's becoming so unattainable. And Does the city have an inventory of land that could be made available for affordable housing? They do, but everything's getting blocked. So at the land tribunal, I go there with my $400 and I can stop a whole development. Mm -hmm. And it's there until the appeal is seen. And because the tribunal is underfunded and understaffed, it takes a year, two years to be seen. And these delays are just eating up the cost of home building. So now an affordable unit that was once 16 stories now needs to be 35 stories. Mm -hmm. And... People want to fight about the shadow of the building. So it's like another delay goes in and it's just, it's becoming, it's not even a squeeze, it's suffocation. Like I talk to young people all the time and it's, we're all trying to figure out like, can we leave the province? Because it's like, if you want children, if you want to be able to support a spouse that may go into their master's or their PhD, you need to have stabilized housing and that's no longer affordable. So oh, it's, it's the typical quandary. As long as you don't need to work, you can find affordable housing in communities where there are no jobs available. But where jobs are available and where they're plentiful, the demand you know, for land and for housing just outpaces the, the ability to put new housing units in the market. I, I, I don't, I've been to Toronto, mm -hmm. uh, had a wonderful tour there when I visited it about two years ago. I didn't really notice vacant housing, but is there a portion of the housing supply that is, again, absentee owned that's sitting vacant? Yes, they're the condos. You can't see them from the ground. Yeah. And this is where it also becomes problematic for the city to have a vacancy tax because to enforce it, we would have to read the water and the gas meters. Those are regulated by the provincial body, so the Ontario Energy Board. And we don't have a data sharing agreement with them. So it becomes a whole another bureaucratic nightmare. And like the enforcement of a vacancy tax has been used in the West Coast in Vancouver, and they've been able to generate some revenue from it. But unless you're looking at the land that is being held empty, and there's a lot of them. If you go into um, the west part of Toronto, there's there are just landowners holding out for corporate developers to up their price. And without incentive, that land's not going to be developed. So it's like, even though Toronto is the largest social housing owner in like North America behind New York, 
uh, we have a backlog there. And unless they address that backlog, they can't purchase new land. So we become a snake eating our own tail. And it's really frustrating because for me, the land value tax made the most sense, like where it's working, it's working great. And the idea of being able to reduce speculation is such a huge issue across all income levels. When you talk to like, even like upper middle class parents, if they have a child that has a dis disability, they need accessible housing. If that doesn't get built, no amount of money is going to make them feel safe about leaving their child with a disability to the system. You know what I mean? And this is yeah. where the complexity of income and housing needs more entanglement because it's like, I could be making a quarter of a million, but if my child's disability isn't covered by public health care and I can't find an accessible housing builder who deals in modular housing, like, what am I going to do? That quarter million doesn't really mean anything because I'm going to really have to start paying a lot more private contractors. And if I'm a parent that doesn't know home building, I could get ripped off. So, yeah, it's one of those things that requires more community work on my end where it's just like I'm trying to let people understand like we can change taxation like no we won't and that's the thing the tax system is so untouched that if you mention touching it people are like anarchy complete anarchy you're a socialist and it's I don't know how to break down that that wall because it's like tax season only happens when we want our returns we don't engage with accountants they're kind of demonized up here because they audit that's how we see them <laughs> finding allies who understand the nature of the problem and the role that the policy solutions you offer um, is a real challenge and i know from you know my experience and colleagues at the henry george school and and around the in the united states the activist organization is called Common Ground USA. And there are chapters in a number of cities and states that lobby, uh, agitate for, for change in legislation. And in the United States, in many states, the problem is it requires a constitutional amendment to the state constitution. Mm -hmm. I wonder if that is a level of obstacle that you face as well in the province of Ontario. So recently, the premier gave our mayor strong mayor powers. And what that means is that they can override parts of the City of Toronto Corporation Act. And that has caused so much drama in the look like in municipal politics, because it's like every councillor should have a vote. But if the mayor gets to override the council, what is the point? So the mechanism exists. Will the mayor use it is another question. Will the premier allow the mayor to use it is another question. And it's, yeah, we've got two co-mayors in Toronto. Um, and yeah, it's complicated things, but like the it's there. It's just both of them are too scared to pull the trigger. So yeah, it's just, and that's the thing, like, you have to nudge them and become a goon. And I, I don't want to do that. It's against my analyst nature, but that's what it's coming to. Well, uh, I wonder if this experience running for mayor has changed your view of what 
level of office you might want to pursue is i mean you've had an opportunity to speak directly to the voters in, in toronto and have a certain level of support yeah. is this a stepping stone for uh perhaps another opportunity to get into a decision-making position it's such a big question <laughs> um Right now, I'm looking at how to use participatory budgeting to take my platform and make it into a thousand participatory projects. Um, I think one of the biggest challenges for me as an analyst is realizing like civic education is the quality of it is not really that great. Even though like I love government and policy, like people have such a strong aversion <laughs> to it that it drives them to not vote. And the only way to counter that is to be more active. I don't know if that means being a politician or just like running my own workshops, but I'm really just focusing on like, how do you make that like government more relatable? And it is just voting on projects, looking in your community and figuring out like, how do you convince 30 50 people that this needs to change and that's really what got me started in government like I was 20 and I needed housing and I registered for social housing not realizing there was a hundred thousand people on the wait list and that like blew my mind so it's like I I'm trying to use participatory budgeting because it's like we have a model for it in our social housing communities already. They get $800,000 every year to choose different improvements for their building. How do you make tenants in condos, in privately owned buildings, ask their counselors for money to change their surroundings? It's our tax dollars. And just breaking down that level of, I think, fear between government and like your everyday life is where to start because like since 2016, people have been really like polarized because of the way that political branding has become like sports teams where they're like, yeah, it's us or them. And you got to kill the other guy. And it's like, dude, it, like it's a neighborhood. <laughs> you now, know what I mean? And your view is from what you see in our news here in the United States, is that divide as intense in Canada as it is here? Oh, yeah, it's it's getting there. Because we're, honestly, we watch America for guidance. We watch a lot of places for guidance before we act. And that's a part of us being risk averse. We're just like, okay, let's see how John does it or Steve. And if he breaks his leg, we won't do it. But that attitude is really, it's really eating at our culture. Because we used to be, a, in my opinion, I grew up with a lot of, low-level community activations where it's like barbecues outside street hockey like those things started to disappear once the capital like the capitalist conservatives were just like we need to save money we're canceling the arts shop classes home ec like they they destroyed everything when I was seven so we're really just trying to get back to you know just being neighbors because I think we've had enough time to watch the fall of January 6th and be like, we're not, we, we don't have the guts to throw overthrow our government. We even had our small one here with the truckers convoy. So it's like, yeah, we're all 
I think we're at a time as Canadians where we're just really reevaluating because we're watching and with your the midterms that just happened, it's like it sets a whole new bar for us. And if we want to even boast, like we have to change the way we're doing things. And this is why the general strike that's happening and on that may happen right now is so big because um, it started with the premier underpaying education workers and they're only getting paid $40,000 a year. If all of us stand up for that, like we can start standing up for different things. So yeah, it are just. Well, correct me if I'm wrong, but yeah. am I, am I correct that in Canada, there is proportional representation at the federal level? No, we're fighting no. for it. We're fighting for it. Yeah. Um, the federal government said that they would look into electoral reform in 2014. That didn't happen. We gave them a second chance. We're we're very forgiving for all the wrong reasons. And yeah, this is the second time the premier has held office. John Tory, who's the mayor, this is his third term. So it's it's really just about like activating working class people and reminding them like politicians are like their employees. They work for you. Give well, them ideas I, to work with. I will I will tell you something a little bit about the history of the Henry George School of Social Science. It used to have a a um a presence in Canada and in Toronto and in Montreal. Oh. Number number of decades ago. And uh, perhaps uh, with with your support and involvement, some of the Georgists who are in Canada might be um, persuaded that that a that a extension of the Henry George School of Social Science in Toronto could be a good tool for civics education. It already exists. They're very informal, but they've approached me on the street <laughs> multiple times already. And it's actually fascinating because it's like, I never knew that they were here and they're, it's an urban planning group, like urban planners. <laughs> and that's the thing. It's like policy rarely speaks to planners. Like we send you documents, but we don't talk about the intersections of our work. And yeah, the Georges have just stopped me on the street. Like, Hey, heard you're into land value tax. <laughs> well, when, yeah. When you're someone who who has a very minority position on an important public policy issue, you're always looking for someone who has somehow come to those same conclusions, those same perspectives. I mean, it it happened to me as a as a much younger person. You know, when when I first I first heard about the subject of land value taxation from a city planner, uh, and I was attending a, a series of public forums on comprehensive land use planning mm. and and back back in the 1970s this, this mm. was and i was already concerned about sprawling development in pennsylvania where i lived at the time and mm. this city planner gave a very persuasive talk about how the taxation of land values could stem urban sprawl and uh and then I approached him and I said, I've never heard of this policy, you know, and he said, give me your business card. And I did. And about a week later, I got a stack of documents in the mail that that kept me reading for a while and studying. And then eventually I found out there was a Henry George School of Social Science that was teaching about this 
subject. And, uh, and so it, it well, brought me in, you know, from a standpoint is I had a professional interest at first, and then uh, the association with the school reinforced the moral issues that were involved more than I had ever given any thought to the very moral issue of whether or not individuals should be permitted to own land without compensating the rest, rest of the community for what is essentially a privilege. And that's a very hard point, a moral point to sell to people uh, today uh, who are to are very much dependent on the net worth in their residential property for their retirement income and even to passing on to an, an estate, you know, to children. And certainly it's yeah. true for minority households who manage have managed to become property owners, mm -hmm. which is a major increase improvement in 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 uh, economic well-being for a lot of families. So it's yeah. it is a it's a difficult issue to convince people is in their best interest, um, even when on, you know, for someone like me, and maybe you're becoming one of these people, you recognized how powerful of a tool it can be to benefit the community as a whole. Yeah, and it actually coincided with my research into environments, social impact and good governance goals, ESGs. Um, they're this new investment class for investors trying to do social impact. And that's how I came across land value tax, because the way that Singapore uses it to green their environment, to grow their spaces and fund development, it's nothing short of like revolutionary. And on a national scale, it's working in a lot of places, like 35 countries. It's just North America. <laughs> like we have our resistance to things that are not Western. And this is where like I'm trying to find more allies across like social work, um, even just like engineering to talk about like how we need a better source of funding in the public realm to do these projects. Because like Toronto has the lowest property tax in the region and that's great, but at what cost? And it, this is mean the, the lowest, tax. lowest rate of taxation as applied to assess values. Or, yeah. Or Okay. And that's the thing. It's like, it's really great because we're the heart of our province and the country, but you can see the rapid deterioration of the state. Like we have overflowing garbage. We, right now we have a roadkill problem and they're understaffed. So it's like, we can keep taxes low to make this place attractive to investors at the cost of running out residents. And that's where a lot of people have to grapple with, like, what type of city do you want? Because the vibrancy of the city isn't because tourists come here. It's the people who live here. Look, those those people in the United States who are working, you know, to persuade political uh, officials and office holders to move to a land value tax basis. They're pretty consistent about telling telling the, the office holder the best thing to do is to uh, make a revenue neutral shift so people you know who who are, um, are paying heavy income tax or wage taxes in the community instead of just saying we're going to tax land values talk about two things one is we're going to reduce the taxes on the value of your home or your office building or your warehouse and yeah. 
if we can, we will then use the additional revenue that we, we raise to reduce wage taxes or even uh, business profits tax. Man, mm -hmm. there, there are now six states in the United States that have moved to a graduated gross revenue tax on businesses. Um, I think New Hampshire is one of them, and I forget the others. But, but there's a good deal of analysis that shows that a graduated tax on gross revenue will uh, benefit small businesses considerably over the a business profits tax. So my only, my only point to you is that packaging the idea of moving, of raising more revenue from land values can be packaged with, okay, we're we're not going to raise taxes. We're going to shift the tax base because there are so many economic benefits in doing so. It's all political will in the end. And that's the thing. Like a lot of these political legacies have been established on, I'm going to lower your taxes and shrink government. And it's about helping voters wrap their mind around, like you can shift the tax burden and we can all contribute and all get what we need. <laughs> that's that's what I'm really trying to help Torontonians deal with because our minds are in recession, inflation, keeping everything low so I don't have to pay more. And it's like, you're only paying more because it's not leveled. <laughs> and yeah, this is where you send me what you've got and I will try and get it to the masses. But um, I've, I've got another meeting I've got to get to soon. So, yeah, I will let you go with, with you. just this observation that I know you totally agree with. Politics dictate, dictates economic outcomes. Oh. And, <laughs> and if we don't get our politics right, we will yeah. never get the right economic outcomes. Absolutely. Chloe, it's been a great pleasure to talk with you uh, for Smart Talk. And I hope that we can welcome you back for another session not too distant in the future. And maybe with the opportunity to congratulate you for your election to that next office. All right. Thank you so much, Edward. I hope you have a wonderful evening. Same to you. And that's it for this week's episode of Smart Talk. Thank you for listening, and we hope it made you think. If you'd like to learn more about our research, check out hgsss.org. That's hgsss.org. If you'd like to listen to our content as soon as it's published, subscribe to our show. If you like our show, please leave us a rating, review, or even share with a friend. It goes a long way. Thanks again for listening, and see you next week.